We live in a time of tremendous opportunity for innovators, entrepreneurs, and those with skill and imagination. But it seems at every turn, there are forces that slow us down or get us off track. I believe you can trigger your independence and lead a flourishing life, be free to choose, and live according to your own values. Join us in a conversation about big ideas in life, liberty, and the pursuit of your happiness. Welcome to The John Riley Project. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome back to another podcast episode here on The John Riley Project. And boy, we got we got some good stuff in, involved for here today. We're going to get into the California recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom. We're going to touch on um, yeah, a little bit of that that particular race. We're going to discuss the recent infrastructure bill that um, President Biden and the Democrats, actually a bipartisan bill that was just passed. We're going to talk a little bit about that infrastructure bill and really what's in it. And we'll kind of break that down. And, and there are some interesting local angles to this whole piece of infrastructure. And then we're going to talk a bit about firefighters in my local town of Poway, California. And this has become a little bit of a chatter in our local social media. So we'll get into that. And then if we have time, I I might have some thoughts on another political race. Um, Scott Peters, who's our local congressman here in the 52nd district in California, um, just has a new com- new um, competitor is an announced that's going to run against him. So got a lot of political stuff, but, you know, it's kind of a lot of new information, new news. We'll be covering all of that. And of course, you know, this is a live stream. What a live stream means is you can participate. So we welcome your thoughts and your comments. Just, you know, go ahead and type them into the comment section on either Facebook or on YouTube, and I'll read them on the air. We'll have a bit of a discussion, but, you know, you're welcome to participate in this conversation. So anyways, um, let's let's get into this. And I think the first topic I really want to explore is the the recall election, which is coming up pretty quick. I mean, when is... When is the uh, is the election? I think it's in September. I know they're getting ready to mail out the ballots here pretty quick. I'm assuming that all the ballots are going to ma- be mailed out to all the voters, just like they were was done in November of 2020. And so this is now really starting to you know get more and more into the news about a recall of California Governor Gavin Newsom, and it, it, it's it's a it's just a remarkable race because. On one hand, you know, there's one, one – the first question on the ballot is, is do you want to recall the governor or not? And it only takes a simple majority, 50 percent plus one, to recall the governor. And after that, the second question is, is if he is recalled, well, who do you want to replace him with? And there's a list of, I don't know, something like 40-something candidates that are on this list. And you can just select one of them, and the one with the most votes is going to win. And so, God, I have so many mixed thoughts on this particular race, but let me just say this up front. I'm going to be voting yes on the recall. Um, I'm going to be voting yes to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. And, you know, when he was elected governor, you know, I figured I didn't vote for him. He, he's a Democrat. I'm, I'm independent. I'm not a, a Republican or a Democrat. But 
when he was elected, I figured we would just get, you know, your typical Democratic governor and get some of his policies. And I knew he probably leaned a little bit further left than Jerry Brown. But I was, you know, I just kind of accepted that as the reality. But as we got into his um, his governorship and particularly when COVID hit, I just thought he was way too aggressive, way uh, too tyrannical with a lot of these shutdowns in the economy. And to me, you know, this podcast is all about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And when the government is declaring certain businesses are essential and other ones are not essential, shutting down parts of the economy, um, you know, basically kicking people out of their jobs, uh, removing people from their life's work and their business. To me, that was way too far. And I know that was the the impetus to get people to sign the petition to remove uh, Gavin Newsom. To me, I'm going to vote yes on the recall just for that reason alone. And if you go online, you'll see there are a number of people that have made, you know, all the reasons why to remove Gavin Newsom. And, you know, 90 percent of them are your typical right wing Republican conservative talking points about how they're angry at California. And, you know, a lot of them have more credence than others. But I wasn't really about to to me, I, those those are part of the package deal when you elected Gavin Newsom. Is that all those typical, how should I say, uh, leftist or Democratic policies kind of come along in the package deal with Newsom? To me, that's no reason to recall him. I mean, he was elected, but it was the COVID um, shutdowns that really pushed me in the other direction. But there's also the hypocrisy of Gavin Newsom and how he had lockdowns for everyone else, but then, you know, he was shutting down indoor dining, but then he goes out and, and participates in indoor dining at the high-end upscale French laundry, not wearing a mask. I mean, so some of that hypocrisy, that two-faced, to me, is another part of the problem, although that's kind of petty. But that's not the main reason. But to me, that's a reasonable reason to, to recall him. Um, but it's, it's interesting how so many people um, are really upset at this recall process in general, especially our friends on the left, our Democratic friends, um, who normally are very supportive of democracy and now we have an opportunity in a Democratic vote to remove the governor, and they're angry at this process. Um, in fact, there's been my, my television ads. I've been getting a lot of Elizabeth Warren on television telling us how this is a terrible plan and we need to protect Gavin Newsom and, you know, really feeling it was, it's an outrageous assault on democracy. I mean, to me, that's comical when people are, are raising that as an objection. Um, Dana uh, Sterl on the live stream says, if he is recalled, you know, talking about Gavin Newsom, if Gavin Newsom is recalled, we will get a MAGA Trump cultist in charge of California. For me, that's way worse than Newsom. OK, well, let's talk about that. OK, first of all, if we get a white, a right wing whack job put in as governor of California, we have separation of power. You know, we have um, a, a legislature that is heavily Democratic. Right. And if you have a hardcore right wing Republican as governor, then most likely there's just going to be gridlock and we're not going to have a lot of those right wing policies because, you know, those will never pass in the state of California. Now, I will say this up front. I don't think Newsom is going to be recalled. Now, I know some of the polls have been, you know, it was like 60 
to keep them, 40% to recall them. And that's been drifting closer and closer to 50-50. There have been some polls where 51% say they will recall him. But I'm of the belief there's no way he's going to be recalled. Uh, California is just too Democratic too blue, in many cases, more and more progressive, and then more particularly, I think this goes to Dana's point, more angry at Republicans. Uh, Don't want anything that's something similar to Trump. They don't want that at all. So most likely, I I don't think the recall is going to pass. It may be close, uh, but in the end, I don't think it's going to pass. Dana Sturl says, that's how the federal government is supposed to work, too. But here we are. You're right. There's supposed to be separation of power. Now, at the federal level, one of my objections is the office of the president has become more and more powerful while the legislature, you know, Congress and the Senate have become weaker and weaker. And it's because those <laughs> those weak ass politicians that we elect into Congress are punting on on their uh, on their power and handing it off to the president. I mean, one of the best examples is when the the legislature in, in D.C. voted for the Iraq war. And, and but actually, technically, they didn't really vote as a declaration of war. They just said, we'll let the president decide. And we all knew what George W. Bush wanted to do when it came to the Iraq war. But even here in California, you know, you, you when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor and granted, he was a Republican, but he wasn't a hardcore right wing whack job. You know, he was much more of a centrist. He had to participate and work with the Democrats. And in many ways, I thought Schwarzenegger kind of pivoted and went in the opposite direction and and approved of a lot of policies that were in direct contradiction to his campaign rhetoric. Um, but at any rate, I, I, I'm seeing a lot of our Democratic friends coming out, especially Democratic leaders that are saying vote no on the recall. But then when it comes time to who's going to replace them, just don't vote for anybody because they don't want to do anything at all to encourage, right? So um, some kind of a of a hardcore right-wing candidate. But of course, who is leading in the polls to, you know, assuming the recall passes? Well, it's Larry Elder. And Larry Elder is an interesting character. He is a um, very hardcore conservative, right-wing guy, a Republican, um, very, very outspoken as a talk show, uh, a radio talk show host. And interestingly, he's black, um, which you don't normally associate with a hardcore right winger. Um, But he's from Compton. um, And, you know, he's a very smart guy. I've seen him interviewed in a lot of cases. And and just like with most politicians, there's certain things I really like in them. And there's other things I really don't like in them. And Larry Elder is certainly fits that bill. But um, he's definitely got gaining the most support of the right wingers, uh, particularly the Trump MAGA people, because he's a he's a name brand. He, he has he's famous in and of, of his own self. Um, but who else is on the list? I mean, there's Kevin Faulkner is on the list, our former mayor of San Diego. And you talk about a guy that's, you know, vanilla, milk toast kind of a, a candidate. It's him. And I think that the Republicans were hopeful that Kevin Faulkner could be their, their great hope. That could be a Republican that could help sway California and make it more of a red state, which is a pipe dream in the first place. Um, but Kevin Faulkner, 
to me, you know, there's a lot of people in San Diego that really don't like him and especially Democrats. Um, and but there's not a whole lot of people that are in love with Kevin Faulkner where there's people that legitimately are really like Larry Elder. Um, now, I know in 2019, Kevin Faulkner did his state of the city address uh, in San Diego back when he was mayor. And I was I actually praised him coming out of that because he was rejecting this whole notion of NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard, you know, rejecting a lot of this resistance to development in a lot of cities. And, and if you've listened to my podcast, you know, I'm generally very pro um progress and when it comes to development and and uh, you know resolving the housing crisis um, which I think is a very serious problem in the state of California and its property rights I'm a big advocate of that well Faulkner came out as Yimby yes in my backyard he was very supportive of a lot of these new initiatives to do more construction and build more residential housing well now that he's a candidate for governor he's flipped. Okay, and he's gone the other way. And, you know, there's proposals that are being discussed at the state level that would allow, let's say, for example, in a typical single family neighborhood, allow people to take their lot and then split it in two and have two homes on a single lot or put like maybe even a small duplex or a three or four unit apartment building next to a single family home. And the objective of doing that is to create more density, provide more housing opportunities, which generally I'm very supportive of. Well, Faulkner has flip-flopped on this, and now he's becoming a NIMBY, which, again, shows me that he really lacks any serious principles. Um, and it's no wonder that he's not getting traction. He's, I think he's tied for second with, with uh, John – what's his name? John Cox. He's the – the Republican candidate who's been on the ballot multiple times and campaigns with a bear, um, which is a circus act in and of itself. Um, so it's just you look at the cast of characters that could potentially replace Newsom, and it's just comical. Um, Dana uh, McGee-Sterl, also on the live stream, chimes in. I truly believe California could benefit from a Republican governor for a while but not anyone in the current Republican Party. It would have to be a Reagan Republican. And I'm not a big fan of Reagan's either. Well, you know, right, the definition of these political parties has shifted in many ways, you know, recently, hasn't it? I mean, certainly the Republican Party is now really the Trump Party. Um, But even if you go back in time and look at Republicans like a, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type or or a, um, who are the other Republican governors we had Pete Pete uh, Wilson the former mayor of San Diego and um, Duke Majin I mean they were kind of you know they weren't hardcore right wingers I mean they were definitely Chamber of Commerce Republicans they were definitely pro business probably pro development um, but. Yeah, I mean, could I, I just don't see it happening in the state of California, especially after we've come out of this Trump presidency. I mean, California is a blue state, and it was really blue in 2016 uh, when when uh, Trump beat Hillary. But, you know, of course, California gave all of its electoral votes to Hillary Clinton, as you expect. But in 2020, it was even more blue. I mean, heck, in my city of Poway, which is one of the few um, Republican cities in this in this uh, county of San Diego, the city of Poway voters voted for Biden over Trump. Um, so, again, I don't see 
Newsom losing this. It may be close. Um, and and if and if we do get a let's just say Newsom lost and Larry Elder won. I mean, Faulkner's not going to win. John Cox isn't going to win. There's a whole other cast of characters in here that are on the ballot. I mean, um, Kevin Kiley, another Republican, Doug Osei, um, Kevin Poffroth, which is a Democrat who is kind of a YouTube star. He's on the ballot. Um, Caitlyn Jenner, of course. How can we forget her? She's on the ballot, but she's not getting any traction either. I mean, she's really more of a, a celebrity candidate. Um None of these people are going to win. I mean, the only one that could win would be Larry Elder, unless something amazing happened in the next 30 days that would um, harm Elder. But he is well ahead of Cox and Faulkner in the in the polling. So, I, again, I, I don't see either of those guys win in this thing. Um, but I do find the process of recalls very interesting. I generally like recalls. Um, now, because if you figure if you can democratically elect them, then why shouldn't you be able to democratically remove them? And I think the threat of a recall also keeps those politicians on their toes. It holds them accountable. And um, and yeah, it could it be disruptive for sure. I mean, I was having a debate with some of my friends here in my hometown of Poway uh, and people were saying we can't have more chaos in the governor's office, especially now with covid. I'm thinking, OK, I get that. But, you know, those 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 people are they're Democrats that are saying that. Right. They don't want their guy removed. But back when Trump was being impeached, I'm sure they would have loved to see more chaos in the White House if to get Trump out. Um, so, again, all this falls under partisan lines. But I generally like recall elections and, you know, I, I never vote for Republicans or Democrats or if I do, it's very rare. Um, so I always love an opportunity to try to vote them out <laughs> um, and to hold them accountable and to know that there's people that are not pleased with their um, with their leadership. Um, Dana McGeester also on the live stream chiming in. They only need the most votes. They could win with five percent of the vote. And you're right. And this is kind of the flaw in in the ointment here, or the fly in the ointment. Um, it takes a 50 percent plus one vote to recall Newsom, but it only takes the person with the most votes to replace them. So you could have someone with 5%, as Dana said, but I don't think anyone's going to have five. I think Larry Elder is polling around 20 or 30%, if I recall. Um, Faulkner and, and John Cox are, where are they, like 10 or 20%? And then the rest of them are all in the single digits. Um, so no, no doubt that whoever replaces Newsom assuming he's replaced, is going to have far less than a majority. But again, I don't think Newsom's going to lose this. I think he's going to squeak by uh, just because I think California voters aren't going to be pleased with the options. Um, but at any rate, I, I just think the process is very interesting and we're um, we're heading into this, right? So we're, we're going to see this more and more in the news. So I'll be happy to share some more commentary as we get into it. Um, I do want to just throw this out at you. You know, again, I've switched my podcast schedule. I'm only doing it on Wednesdays now. I was doing it Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two, and I enjoyed doing it, but that was a lot. And I, I didn't feel I was, I could be as effective as, as I could if I were doing it once a week. But one thing I am considering doing, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is that on Fridays, I'm thinking about having a happy hour podcast. And what I mean by that is I would 
welcome many of the many of the people that are frequent um, uh, uh, participants in the live stream, people that have been my previous guests. Um, I would invite them to join me in the podcast and we would do it like a big Zoom call. Right with with six or seven people, and we would all talk and and hang out together, and we could go around the room asking questions and generating some discussion, and um, you know, kind of like a hangout or like a happy hour. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I think it'd be kind of fun to do, and I was thinking of maybe doing that on Friday. So let me know your thoughts on that. If you, this was inspired by actually by one of my previous guests, Mike Ryan, who also enjoys being on these live streams, and. And I think it'd be a fun way because one of the things that I enjoy about this podcast is making it a community forum. So let's make it a community forum and have uh, and to welcome you all. So uh, let me know your thoughts on that. If you if you think that's an idea worth pursuing, um, but I'll put that out on the table. All right. Next topic. Um, We're going to talk now about the Biden infrastructure bill. Okay, and this thing hasn't officially been signed into law. But it's well on its way, right? It passed the Senate. They they had a bipartisan approval. I guess they got 19 or 20 Republicans to vote on this infrastructure bill. And you think you hear infrastructure and right. Normally you think, oh, roads and bridges and and that's infrastructure. Right. But you got to be careful because they're defining infrastructure differently in a lot of ways. And we're going to break some of that down. Um, but I know that a lot of the Democrats are overjoyed. And look at President Biden. He's getting some big deals accomplished. And this is a $1.5 trillion or 1.2, excuse me, $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, which is less than, I think, the original proposal. I think he wanted to do close to $2 trillion. And um, this is likely going to pass. I know that, you know, Senator Cinema and Manchin, who def- typically have been uh, problems for the Democrats, they've kind of agreed to this slightly scaled down package. And the funny thing is, is that some of my Democratic friends are saying, hallelujah, a bipartisan bill. Well, great leadership by Joe Biden. And I'm thinking, remember that George Carlin quote where he said the word bipartisan usually means some larger than usual deception is being carried out. And I think that's why I I think I really want to break this down. And so um, here in the here, I got my some of my notes here, you know, like what's in this infrastructure bill. Right. And again, you normally think it's roads and bridges and and roads and bridges are a big part of it. It's one hundred and ten billion, which is really only about 10 percent. And, you know, you hear comments about our crumbling infrastructure in America. But you know what? First of all, one hundred and ten billion dollars sounds like a lot of money and it is a lot of money, but it's not as much as you think it is. But why? This is the question I have. Why is the federal government funding this? I mean, normally roads and bridges are funded at the state level and in some cases at the local level. So why why are we depending on the federal government for this? I mean, really the right way to do this is to just have the users of those roads pay for those roads. So, you know, if we need to hike the gas tax or hike the registration tax to pay for this, then fine. And this is something that the states should be doing, in my opinion, um, because that's their role. I mean, that's that's their job. But again, there's so much outpouring of generally supportive infrastructure. This bill passed very easily. Um, But there's also in here thirty nine billion for public transit. And when you think of public transit, you know, we're thinking of, you know, rail 
and I know Amtrak is going to be getting some of this money. Or there's proposals more for light rail. And I this always tweaks me is this fascination that people have, this romantic notion that people have with rail. I mean, trains are like 19th century technology. Trains can only get you to the place where the track ends. Um, trains can't get you from point A to point B. They can get you close, but then you've got to be able to travel beyond that. Um, and I know that uh, I mean, I've, I've been on the trains in Europe. And, um, you know, when my daughter and I went back to Europe, we rented a car for part of it. We used trains for part of it. And the trains are nice. I mean, I'm not saying they're, they're a terrible thing. But if we're looking forward into the 21st century, why are we embracing and doubling down on 19th century technology? Um, so that's a part of it. You know, they're talking about more money for, you know, um, renewable energy buses and everything. And, but this is the other angle to this. This I find very interesting because I'm, I'm an electric vehicle owner. Uh, my wife and I have two electric vehicles. We power them by solar. I'm a big, big fan of EV technology. But I'm not a big, big fan of government subsidizing it and essentially creating corporate welfare. I mean, heck, that's why Elon Musk is one of the richest people on the planet. Every one of his businesses gets government subsidies. If it's not Tesla, it's Solar City, or, you know, he makes a lot of his money off of corporate subsidies, corporate welfare. And of course, Joe Biden's plan has a lot of corporate welfare that's going to go into more development of battery technology. Now, we do need more research and development of battery technology. Totally agree. And as battery technology is optimized, EVs are going to get more range. Our phones will, will last longer. As battery technology improves, we're going to be able to learn how to better recycle batteries so they're not in an environmental danger. That's a good thing. Um, but what but when the government funds it, what that ends up doing is subsidizing the shareholders of these corporations that ultimately benefit from this. And so to me, that's a big problem. But it, but again, when you say electric vehicles, usually people feel guilty about climate change. They want to do something for the environment. So they naturally approve it. But this is how cronyism exists. This is how corporate America and the government get together. And so now these large autom automobile manufacturers, they're getting handouts from the government to not only help subsidize the, their bottom line, to not only help shareholders you know, continue to get a high price on, on their shares, but what this ends up doing is it, it – it, it minimizes the amount of investment that those companies themselves need to do in R&D. It allows the R&D to be subsidized by the federal government. I mean, to me, this is a, this is a problem. This is, this is cronyism. Um, Dana McGee-Sterl on the live stream chime in and further. Commuter trains on the East Coast, specifically in Boston, have 2 million riders a day. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree. Where trains exist... You know, where they're part of the existing infrastructure. Yeah, they have a lot of ridership. But, I mean, look at California. I mean, I mean, I've lived in California my whole life. California is not a train environment, right? We don't have a lot of trains. I know they're putting in more light rail in, around here in San Diego, but it's extremely expensive, 
to put more trains here in San Diego. I mean, heck, even the Amtrak line that goes along the coast, the the, the cliffs are crumbling there in Del Mar, um, which they they have big issues with. But putting more trains in San Diego is not easy. I mean, if you're building a city, you know, in the earlier stages of the development of the city and you bake in the trains and the subways at that time, it could, I can see how that could work, especially in an urban environment. But in Southern California, where there's so much sprawl, in San Diego County, where there are so many mesas and canyons, it makes it very difficult to, to, to you know, have light rail. I mean, look at the extension of the of the red line in San Diego from Old Town going up to UCSD. Have you seen the overpasses they're building for that? It's enormous. Or, you know, and they, I know they did this about 10 years ago, but they extended the, the trolley from um, the stadium, which is now San Diego State property, up the hill to the main San Diego State campus. And that's a wonderful line. I've used it many times. But that's expensive as hell. And how many people actually use it? I mean, if if you're driving your car and you see the trolley go by, I challenge you to look inside and roughly approximate what percentage of those trolley cars are full. And almost always it's well under 20 percent. The only exceptions might be when it's, you know, a trolley that's going to a ball game at Petco Park or going to, you know, a ball game at at Viejas Arena to go see the San Diego State Aztecs. But other than that, the trolleys, they don't get as much ridership as you think. And on top of it, a significant percentage of the people that are on the trolleys are people that frankly, used to use the buses before. And I think it's because in California, this is such a, um, this is a culture that's been built on the automobile where we have the freedom to travel to the mountains, to the beach, to the desert at a snap of a finger. And we can be there in a couple of hours. Um, In order to build these trains is going to take such huge investment when really the, what's the technology of the 21st century? It's going to be electric vehicles. It's going to be self-driving electric vehicles that can actually get you from your house directly to the specific spot where you want to go. Trains will never be able to do that because you don't have a train station at your front door. So even if they expanded the, the, the trains dramatically here in San Diego, it will never, ever be enough. I mean, it will take generations upon generations and countless amounts of hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars to create a network like Boston or to create a network like New York City or like Tokyo. So, But here we're seeing more investment in trains. But with electric vehicles, I just want to comment on this. And Dana McGee-Sterl says our public transportation is terrible in San Diego. And you're right, it is. But a lot of it is for the reasons I've just explained. It's not part of our culture. The culture here embraces the automobile. The topography that, you know, is difficult to have trains throughout this county because of the mesas and because of the canyons. Um, it's not easy to build this. And there's already an infrastructure of roads. Um, I mean, again, that's why I think that's the beauty of self-driving EVs is you don't need to build new train tracks. You can use the existing infrastructure. 
and self-driving EVs, they, they can travel more intelligently. They can travel as a swarm, like a swarm of bees, where they can be tightly packed with, with um, automated communication, wireless technology, so the cars can be side-by-side side in close proximity, but being driven safely, more safely than humans driving. Um, and then when a car needs to peel off to take an exit to go into a, a neighborhood, they can easily do that and do it safely with this, these new automated technologies. I'm a big fan of it. To me, that's the future. That's the 21st century. Rail is like the 19th. But I want to comment this one point on EVs. And the common thing we'll often hear is that there's not enough electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the United States. We need more charging stations is what they say. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, I'm a big EV driver. Okay. We have a charging station in our garage. In fact, it's powered by the solar panels on our roof. It's a beautiful ecosystem that we've built here. I'm really proud of it. But for 90% of the miles driven by EVs, can be handled by having a charging station in your garage. So for single family homes, I mean, that, that's the way you do it. Because like we charge our car in our garage and our cars get, you know, 200, roughly speaking, 250 miles of range. How often do you drive more than 250 miles in a single day? There are obviously some people do, but it's, that's the exception. And as electric vehicle batteries become more efficient and have greater capacity and thus deliver longer range, further distance for these EVs, you know, a single charge is going to be able to go 300, 400, 500, 600 miles. And really, who drives five, 600 miles a day? Very few. The only time you really need this, this uh, broad network of infrastructure for charging stations is when you're on a road trip. And that's what I talked about in my last podcast. I took a road trip in my EV from San Diego to North Lake Tahoe, uh, went up the 395, it was a gorgeous drive, and then I came back through the Nevada desert, and it was a wonderful trip. And I used electric vehicle charging stations along the way. But if you go on this app, it's called PlugShare, PlugShare.com. Um, or you can download the PlugShare app. It shows you a map of every electric vehicle charging station in America and, and beyond. And these the charging stations are rapidly expanding right now, not because, well, there's been some government subsidy, but for the most part, these are private corporations that are building their networks you know, in the gasoline world, we have Chevron and Shell and Exxon. In the EV world, we have EVgo, Electrify America, EV Connect, ChargePoint, Blink, all these different companies that have their own networks of charging stations that they're putting aggressively around, you know, all across the United States. If you look at on the PlugShare map, there are very few zones in America that don't have a significant number of EV charging stations. So what's happening here is Biden wants to invest more money in EV charging stations. Who does that help? It helps the shareholders of those charging station companies that sell the gear. So again, I, I take this more pragmatically. 
I love my EV. I love the technology. I think it's the greatest thing. Um, but I don't agree with the subsidies. But just because I don't agree with the subsidy, I accept it as a reality. I mean, I'm pragmatic about it. I know I'm not going to change this, this policy. This is what's coming. And the momentum is huge. There's going to be more and more electric vehicles. There's going to be more and more electric vehicle charging stations. So I got on board. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, it was great to get on board because everywhere I turn, people are throwing money at me. Or people are giving me free charging or giving me rebates to buy the car or they're giving me free access to the HOV lane on the freeway where I don't have to wait in traffic. So many advantages to having an EV. But one of the things that I'm doing is I I changed, I reconfigured some of my investments and now I'm putting money into some of these EV charging companies like the ones I listed, EVgo and Electrify America and Blink and some of these others. Because there naturally is going to be a tremendous amount of growth in that in that particular industry sector. And a lot of it is because the government's throwing money at it. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I don't think it's necessary because whenever I drive my EV and I use one of these high-speed charging stations on my road trip, I never, ever, ever, never have to wait. It's not like there's a line to use these things. It's never there. Now, and, and they're still building more. I mean, they anticipate there's going to be a need because right now I think only about one or two percent of the cars on the road are electric. But, you know, by 2030, I know California or is it 2035? California wants to not sell any gasoline powered cars brand new at auto lots. They want them to be almost all electric or if not electric, some other sustainable technology like hydrogen. So, yeah, there's going to be more people embracing electric cars. There's going to be a need for more charging stations. But right now, there's a lot. There's plenty of them. And there's no wait. So a lot of people use this as an objection even to get an EV. Oh, I'll get an EV when there's more charging infrastructure. There's no reason not to get an EV now. I mean, you could drive cross-country in an electric vehicle. Not a problem. Assuming you have one of the longer-range cars, like a Tesla. or We have a Tesla Model 3 and a Hyundai Kona. And those are longer range EVs. But Biden is putting here, what, what, $7.5 billion into electric vehicle charging stations, um, which is an additional $5 billion for electric school buses and hybrids. And, you know, they want to power all the the school buses, which, again, how people how do you say no to more school buses? Right. But again, I look here in my hometown of Poway. There are less and less kids use school buses. More and more kids get rides from their parents. Using the school buses is expensive. I mean, I remember my kids used the school bus when they were in middle school. And I think back then, this is, you know, 2012-ish, they had to pay like five, six hundred bucks a year to use the school bus. And it's probably a lot more than that now. Because less people are using it, and they got all this these new buses, they got to pay for them. They got to pay for the drivers. Um, that funding really should be local, because it's the local people that use it. Um, but now taxpayers that number one aren't using school buses, or number two don't even have kids, are paying for electric school buses in other parts of the country that don't even affect them. That's the other part of this. A lot of this stuff should be done locally. Now, $65 billion in this bill is going to expanding broadband. 
You think of this one. This one, again, strikes me as odd. Um, now, granted, I get it that, you know, certain communities have high-speed internet. I mean, I'm using Cox Cable right now. I've got the upgraded package that gives me maximum uh, upload-download speed, which makes it really good when I'm doing these live streams. If you remember, in some of my early podcast episodes when I was doing the live stream, I didn't have the highest level of broadband, and the quality suffered. Um, so I understand, yeah, people, different people have different levels of broadband. But right now, broadband, you've got a string, coax cable, fiber optic cable, you know, underground, you know, in conduits underground, or God forbid you're still doing it on telephone poles. Um, that, again, is like 21st century technology. We're, we're getting to the point now where 5G is coming. It's, it's expanding now. And the, the download speeds on mobile devices have gotten pretty good. Now, they're nowhere near what broadband is. But they're darn good. I mean, it's way better than what it was 5, 10 years ago. And it's going to continue to get better because of companies like Qualcomm here in San Diego. Um, this always strikes me as odd. And besides, broadband already is privately run. I mean, Cox Cable and AT&T and, I mean, Spectrum Cable, we can list all of them. And I know we have awkward relations with, relationships with these companies. A lot of people don't like these companies because they sort of have a monopoly in these areas. But wireless, I think, is going to eventually take this over. So why in the hell are we investing money in broadband? Um, now, people say, well, there's people that live in rural communities and they can't get broadband. Well, first of all, besides the fact that Elon Musk is putting satellites in the air to help with broadband so it's accessible everywhere, again, wireless, that's a good idea. But if a person chooses to live in the boonies, like I was just in Tonopah, Nevada. It's not a very glamorous place um, in the middle of nowhere. If someone chooses to live there, and, you know, it's a nice community, it's got its pros and cons, but it shouldn't be the duty of people in San Diego to pay so people in Tonopah can have high-speed internet. But this bill is what ends up happening. And on top of it, it'll end up just subsidizing these private corporations. Um, so then there's money in here to modernize the electric grid, which actually that is necessary. But again, it makes you wonder, is this also subsidizing private utility companies like SDG&E, who are already screwing over uh, people in San Diego with some of the highest electricity rates in, this, in the nation? And now they're going to get further subsidies from the government. Um, but we, need, we, we do need to make our, grids, our electric grid better, particularly if we're going to expand electric vehicles. Right now, it's not really a much of a problem especially for us, because we have solar on our house. We self-power our cars that way. We power our house that way. I power this podcast that way through our solar panels. To me, that's the answer. I mean, imagine if we all had, um, if we all had essentially a, a, um, a power plant on our roof. If we all had power plants on our roof, I mean, that would be tremendous and we would have less reliance on the grid. But there's more um, investment there. There's $25 billion for airports. OK, that, you know, why in the hell? That should be one of the bigger ones is helping expand these airports. But again, really, you could argue that the airports really should be funded by the people that use the airports. The price of the tickets to fly should be more expensive to help fund the airports 
rather than taxing everyone to pay for it. Um, there's improvement, money going to water and wastewater and, and, you know, all good. I mean, I'm a big proponent of having water recycling here in San Diego County. I think that's important because we're like a desert up against the ocean. And we have to find better answers to recycle water. But again, I think that should be local. Because I don't think someone that lives in the upper peninsula of Michigan where there's an abundance of water should be should have the duty, should have the requirement to fund the expansion of wastewater recycling in San Diego. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what's in this bill. The other interesting thing that's in this bill that I, I think there's a, there's a number of things that you don't really think of as infrastructure. Again, roads and bridges. Yeah, airports. You know, maybe water systems, I get that, ports. You know, broadband is kind of a reach on infrastructure, but I can kind of get the angle to it. But they're doing other things like addressing racial discrimination in infrastructure because there have been communities that have been sliced in half because of a freeway or a major road that's now gone through that community. I mean, we've seen that here in Rancho Penasquitos nearby where the 56 has essentially you know, partitioned that community into two. But there's there's a billion dollars going to reconnect these communities. But again, they're, they're doing it through the scope of racial discrimination. When they built the 56 freeway here in San Diego, was that a racial discrimination issue? Did they redirect the 56, you know, to avoid white people's houses and, and go after people of color? I don't think they did. In some communities, maybe that did happen. I think when they expanded the 15 freeway south of the 8, yeah, remember that used to be crazy. It used to go down to like a single lane with stoplights. It was awful when you traveled through that area. What area was that? City Heights, I think? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, when they when they really built out the 15, it did split those communities in half. But you know what they did is they were smart. They they built like an overpass and the overpass has a park on it. It's kind of an interesting idea. So is that what they're planning to do here? Maybe, but see, they do it under the framework of racial discrimination. And so immediately the hearts go out and people want to do it. But is that really, I mean, there's issues we need to resolve when it comes to race issues, but is this one of them? Really? I mean, how high of a priority is this when we want to resolve race issues? I mean, we really want to resolve race issues. We've got to reform the criminal justice system so the police aren't killing people of color, aren't loading up our jails with people of color. So we don't have situations like Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner. That's what we should be focusing on, not trying to build tunnels that connect communities that had a road go through them. But at any rate, I digress. But the interesting angle to this is is the cryptocurrencies are part of this. Yeah, like like Bitcoin and all the other cryptos. And there are regulations in there that are going to require brokers of cryptocurrency to gather the names and addresses and contact information of everyone that is using cryptocurrency. Now, I... I'm still trying to figure out cryptocurrency because, you know, is it a currency? Is it an investment tool? Is it a pyramid scheme? But I think people are legitimately transacting with it. And it's an interesting technology because it's outside the scope 
of the currency system we have with the federal government, where we're seeing the erosion of the value of the dollar as inflation keeps going up, where cryptocurrency can really hold its value to a far greater degree. The other benefit of cryptocurrency is that for some people, it's the anonymity that's so important, that the fact that they can trade and make transactions and not be known. You know, that party A and party B can buy and sell from one another, and they don't have to report that to federal authorities. Which I think in a nation that's supposedly founded on the idea of liberty and freedom, and we have a Fourth Amendment that protects our privacy, that makes a great deal of sense that we should be able to have transactions that aren't under the, you know, the watchful eye of the federal government. But they're implementing these regulations partly to raise money so it can be taxed. But this has nothing to do with infrastructure, but it's in the infrastructure bill, and it's going to be eroding a, a, a vibrant new industry in our economy. Now, what's going to end up happening is I think a lot of you know, the people that really value anonymity are just going to continue to use cryptocurrency, but just use it offshore. They're not going to transact in America because they know that the watchful eye of government's on them. But to me, that was a really odd thing that was in the bill. So, um, I don't know. The other angle to this is, you know, again, like roughly close to half of the Republican senators voted for this. Infrastructure generally is a bipartisan thing. In fact, when Trump was running for election, he wanted an infrastructure bill. He never delivered it, but he he campaigned on an infrastructure bill that was way bigger than the one Biden's doing. So Republicans, I don't know, in my opinion, they're just they're they're just right wing socialists in many ways. They're all for a lot of these subsidies to corporations and for redistribution, as long as it it benefits them and their constituents. And in this particular case, there's, as we went through, there's a lot of cronyism. There's a lot of corporations that are benefiting from this free money that's going to be flowing their way. You know, to me, the Republicans and Democrats, it seems like they're so different, but they're really not. They really aren't. There are legitimate differences, but underneath the hood, they're very, very similar. And that's what we're seeing here. And then, you know, by the way, they don't have a way to pay for this. Um, not that anyone cares anymore. I mean, the deficits are through the roof. The debt is exploding. The Republicans don't care. The Democrats don't care. Voters don't care. Seems like no one cares. But we end up racking up debt and passing the obligation out to future generations. It's amazing. But of course, sometimes the Republicans will care when the Democrats are in power. It's the hypocrisy of the GOP. But in this case, like almost half of the senators that are Republican voted for it. Um, it's something. And, and now we got another one coming down the pike, a three and a half trillion dollar deal. Three and a half trillion. The, 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 the volume of money that's being spent, particularly without a revenue source, is mind boggling. And this I mean, this nation just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. At what point is it going to break? Does anyone care? I mean, as long as these politicians keep promising all these goodies, the voters will keep voting for them. And again, I think that's why Gavin Newsom is going to survive the recall. Okay, so yeah, that's um, 
that's the the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And as George Carlin said, the word bipartisan usually means some larger than usual deception is being carried out. So that's something. Okay. Now we're at what? 51 minutes. Now I want to talk about firefighters. Firefighters. You're thinking, you know, there's big fires up in Northern California, right? Huge. Uh, This Dixie Fire is the second largest fire in California's history. Firefighters are very important in society. No question. Um, And, you know, we lived through the fires here in Poway in 2003 and 2007. You know, I commented before that in 03, the house directly across the street from me burnt down. And three other homes in very close proximity burnt down when I used to live in the southeast corner of Poway. And then in 07, you know, we had the second round of fires and the danger wasn't as close to us, but still huge portions of my hometown of Poway burnt to the ground. It's a very scary time. So we're all very aware when it's fire season, you know, our radar is up, our nose is always smelling for fires. And so there's obviously concern about fires, right, and firefighters. Well, here in my hometown of Poway, and I I comment about this person frequently in my podcast. Her her name is Chris Cruz, and she runs a Facebook group called South and North Poway Votes. And Chris is... um, is a community activist, and she's very good at what she does. She she gets information out to people. She rallies people. She is a Democrat. And she's a, much more left wing than I am. And Poway is generally a very conservative town. The whole city council are Republicans. So, you know, she, f- from her perspective, fights the good fight. And even though she loses quite frequently, but she doesn't stop. And I, I give her credit for that. Even she and I, sometimes we see eye to eye. Other times we don't. But it's this is what this one caught my attention because whenever you talk about firefighters, everyone's usually like, oh, yeah, we need firefighters. Right. We don't want our houses to burn down, especially here in Poway when we're so darn nervous about it. Well, she she was sharing how this the the city of Poway's fire department, which is we don't contract out. It's actually our own city employees. They have two new trainees, four vacancies, and the experienced firefighters are leaving for better pay and working conditions in other cities. People are saying, and I haven't really verified this, that Poway's firefighters are the lowest paid firefighters in all of San Diego County. I'm like, really? That's, that surprised me when I, when I heard that. Um, and, I, and, and part of the, the challenge is, is that I know firefighters here in Poway, they've been working shifts and because they're shorthanded, largely because we have some firefighters that have been sent north to help fight these bigger fires, which makes sense, right? But they still keep a a good fire contingent here in in Poway, but they are shorthanded. And so sometimes they've got to ask uh, firefighters to do back-to-back shifts and, you know, Back-to-back shifts for a firefighter is a little bit different than back-to-back shifts for people that work in the private sector because firefighters, like, live at the firehouse, right? They sleep at the firehouse. They have a kitchen and a television and a living room at the fire. They're on call. They're being paid, as they should, but it's not like they're 
always grinding, you know, when they're working. But sometimes they've got it work back-to-back shifts, especially now. And some people are saying this is terrible working conditions and we need more firefighters. We need to pay the firefighters more. Because in Poway, we're proud of our firefighters and we, we support our firefighters. That sounds good, doesn't it? And it sounds like, how, how could it be that Poway doesn't pay their firefighters enough? Um, and so, you know, Chris is really making this a big point and she's rallying people to contact city council and get them organized and try to get city council to do something about this terrible crisis. One of her arguments is, is that we funded this community center, paid for it with cash rather than borrowing money and having more bonds. And we could have used that money to pay for more firefighters and give them greater salaries. Now, I, for one, love the idea that they pay cash for, the, for that community center because I know what the bonds are like with the schools. You know, in Poway, we had the billion dollar bond, which was outrageous. You know, taxpayers are paying back. Well, I've actually I haven't even started paying back, but they will pay, uh, roughly speaking, a billion dollars a year, a billion dollars in total to borrow about a hundred million <laughs> Um, We've had some terrible financial decisions that have been made by our local schools when it comes to especially to bonds. And when the city of Poway said, oh, we're going to fund this, these capital improvements with cash, we actually have money saved for this. I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is like good governance for, for Christ's sake. Thank goodness. But now some people aren't happy about that. Because they want the money being used to pay for the firefighters. Um, Yuri Bolin on the live stream chiming in. He says they didn't hesitate for their administrative staff. Yeah, the administrative staff gets money. And, and they're getting raises. You know, even though we talk about the schools, the teachers, are getting, everyone's getting raises. If you work in government, generally speaking, you're paid pretty well. Um, you typically are going to get raises. You got usually pretty attractive benefits package. Um, you know, if you're unsure what kind of a career to pursue, especially if you're young, going into government work is very lucrative compared to similar jobs in the private sector. Um, it used to be that um, government jobs paid less than the private sector, but had really good benefits and often, you know, a lot more security. It was harder to fire them. But that, you know, that has changed. In many cases, government workers are paid more. So I I started thinking about this and I thought, okay, the firefighters are important. I mean, you hear me out. I mean, I I agree. Firefighters are important. But are they really that poorly paid? Really? Now, I didn't go and like compare against all the cities. I should do that for the next podcast. But what I did do is I went to this website and I this is an amazing website, by the way, and it's called it's called Transparent California and at transparentcalifornia.com. You can look up the salaries of any employee in the state of California, whether they work for the state government or the city government. You can see their name, their title, their salary any overtime money they got, the value of their benefits package, everything. It's all broken down. Um, And so I thought, well, what are our firefighters being paid? Well, 
they're actually being paid a lot. And and sometimes you'll see that like the entry salary is like 40,000 or something like that, maybe in the mid 40s. And that doesn't sound that sounds too low, right? But none of them are making that. There are literally, I counted over 50 people in the fire department in the city of Poway in 2019, two years ago, over 50 people were making over $150,000 a year. Now, that's their regular pay, plus their overtime pay, plus this other category called other pay, which I don't really understand what that is, plus their benefits, plus their pension debt, you know, which they're going to get. You know, that's, that's, that's pay. It's just deferred pay. But there were 50 people that are in the Poway Fire Department, and, they, and I'm not going to read their names. That, that wouldn't be fair. But they, they may be um, a battalion chief, a captain, a paramedic. They might be an engineer paramedic. Um, they might be a firefighter paramedic. And that's one of the things that makes Poway's Fire Department so interesting is that they all, you know, they do the ambulance work too, which is a good thing. Um, that they can do double duty because, you know, there's not fires all the time. So when, there's, when, the, when there are no fires, they're still providing a valuable service. But it's not like these firefighters are making peanuts. I mean, there are 50 of them that are making over $150,000 a year. That's a lot. So then I think and, – and some people claim that they are the lowest paid firefighters in the entire county? Really? So that means that in other cities, the firefighters are making 175000 200000 and up and up and up. Now, I know when firefighters can make a lot of money in overtime. I know that. And I know firefighters, if they play the game effectively, they can rack up a lot of overtime right before they retire. So their pension basis is, is like is distorted high. And then that makes their pension payments really attractive. They're able to play the game, play the system. But I mean, I, I read this and I, I was just blown away. 50 people that are getting compensated over $150,000. And this is in 2019. I'm sure they've had raises since then. They certainly haven't had their pay cut. In no way. I mean, imagine the 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 horror and and the and the screaming in the community if firefighters had their pay cut. They didn't have that. And um, you know, the fire chief. I actually know the fire chief in Poway. He and I coached little league together. He's a good guy, really good guy. I'm not. So I, this is not a personal attack on any of these people because they're good people, but they're not being paid peanuts. They're not like just barely getting by. People want to have these food drives to come to the firehouse and give them food because they feel like they need to help them. Now, one of the things they can't deliver food and gift baskets because of COVID, but it's not like these guys are like in the soup kitchen line, you know, getting, getting the, uh, the, the muffin stumps from Seinfeld, you know, Remember that episode with the uh, the top of the muffin? Um, the soup kitchen people didn't like getting the stumps. Um, 
they're not they're not in line with our friends at Father Joe's, um, you know, villages. These firefighters are paid pretty well. Now, should they be paid more? I mean, we can have that conversation. It's a risky job for sure. There are a lot of jobs that are a lot more risky than that, that are paid a lot less. But, you know, we can have the debate if they should be paid more. But it's not like they're not being paid very much at all. Over 50 of them are making over $150,000 a year. So, I don't know, it's something. I mean, there's so many interesting distortions that are going on in this economy. You know, I mentioned earlier, there are four vacancies in the Poway Fire Department. To me, that's amazing. Because usually with fire departments, they they are rarely ever begging for people to work there. Usually when there are openings at a fire department, there are like gigantic numbers of people that will wait in line to submit their application. And there's like a lottery system and it's very competitive because those are usually pretty well-paid jobs, especially if you're a person that doesn't have a college degree. It's an amazing job. Um, And there's a good future in it, you know, in terms of promotions and opportunity. It's a great career. So it's amazing that there are four vacancies, but maybe that's just indicative of the fact that there's just generally a worker shortage all around America. But this is the crazy part is is that I'm kind of digressing away from firefighters, but there's certain things that just don't make sense. So on one hand, like was it last month, I think 900,000 something jobs were created. Unemployment is now down to like five point. Was it 5.6%? I don't know what it is in San Diego. It's probably a little less than that is my guess. Um, But unemployment is down. Uh, Millions of jobs are being created. People are calling this a great recovery. But then why did they extend the eviction moratorium? I don't get that. Um, To me, I mean, there are people that are, like squatting in houses that are living in houses and not paying rent, not because they're poor, but because they don't have to. Because the law says that they don't have to pay and they can't get kicked out. And when there are all these people going back to work and there are, in this case, there are a handful of openings at the Poway Fire Department where you can make at least $150,000 a year, which is shocking that those jobs aren't gobbled up right away. Why is there an eviction moratorium? Uh, to me, I, I, I'm still baffled by that. I, mean, I get, I, I mean, I didn't agree with the eviction moratorium, you know, during the heat of COVID when Gavin Newsom, who I was objecting to, was shutting down huge portions of the economy. I didn't agree with that, but I understood it. I understood his strategy and why he did it, even though I didn't agree with it. And the natural extension of that is when you put all these people out of work, then someone's got to pay them so they can eat. And they've got to have a way to keep a roof over their heads. In some cases, they got more money. And a lot of people did get paid more money to stay at home than they were making at their job in the first place. But even with all of that, why couldn't they pay rent if they were making more money than they were in their previous job? they were making more money to stay at home during the lockdowns of COVID, then why couldn't they pay rent? And now when there's tremendous job opportunities everywhere you look, hundreds of thousands, close to a million people were hired in the United States last month. And it's been going like this for a few months and it's going to continue. How can people not pay their rent? 
Now, we can talk about the fact that rent is expensive. And that's a problem. That's part of the housing crisis in California. That's why I'm supportive of more development. But the reasons for the eviction moratorium are no longer consistent with what's going on in reality today. Because people are going back to work. And people, if they're not going back to work, they're getting handouts from the government to stay at home. So I know I digress on this. But a lot of this doesn't make sense to me. Now, some people say, oh, you're privileged. You're living in your own little ivory tower. Maybe I am. Um, but it's something. <laughs> this whole thing is just so many things that don't make sense. But anyways, the Poway firefighters, I think we're going to hear more about this. This is going to be, this is, you know, getting a lot of traction in my local community in the city of Poway and, and a number of different Poway Facebook groups. And Chris Cruz, to her credit, is really fan in the flames. <laughs> Sorry to use that analogy with firefighters, but she's fan in the flames and, you know, really riling people up. And I know people are sending emails to our city council members. And she's even written some sample emails to send them. That's And she's a community organizer. She does a good job, even though I may not agree with her. But I give her credit for that. I, I think that's, that's a great thing, that what she does. Um, we need more people to take a more active role in the community. Um, but it's something, you know. So I think we'll hear more about this. I think in my next podcast, I'll, I'll share some of the numbers that I've discovered to compare the compensation of firefighters in Poway versus other cities in San Diego. Frankly, I could go on to transparentcalifornia.com and probably figure it out myself. But it's important that when you do that analysis, you're not just looking at their base pay. You're looking at all the other categories of compensation that they get because that's the true number. So so anyway, since we did a segment there on, on my hometown of Poway, I got to Give a shout out to one of our sponsors, PowayStore.com. Go to PowayStore.com and you can get T-shirts and hats and posters and all kinds of cool Poway swag showcasing our city and the country, Poway, California. Go to PowayStore.com and buy a gift for your friend in Poway, your loved one in Poway. It's a great store. I encourage you to go visit them. Okay, um, we're at, wow, an hour and nine minutes. I, I want to make one final comment. And this is on my local congressman, Scott Peters. So Scott Peters, I think he was a former city councilman in San Diego. And now he represents our area in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. And a new competitor has, has come forward. It's going to run against him in 2022. And it's Richard Bailey, the mayor of Coronado. And this made a little bit of news. And, you know, Richard Bailey is an interesting guy. He's, he's a Republican. He's kind of a low-tax, low-spending Republican, although I'd love to see his track record in Coronado. It may or may not be good. I don't know. But what is this guy thinking? I mean, there's no way he's going to beat Scott Peters. Unless Scott Peters suddenly finds himself in a in a um, Governor Cuomo scandal, which I don't think Scott Peters ever would. Scott Peters, to me, you know, it's interesting. Scott Peters is a very middle of the road Democrat, and he's in a very middle of the road kind of district. Um, and I just don't ever see him losing. He's just a nice guy. He's a Padre fan, 
Oh, by the way, how the Padres doing? I, I checked the score right before the podcast. They were already down 4 nothing in the second inning. Oh, my God. Hopefully they've come back. Um, but anyways, Richard Bailey is running, and he's saying, we have a track record of keeping the public safe and paving our streets and balancing the budget with low taxes and zero debt. And we want to bring this fiscally responsible, socially respectful leadership to Washington. Well, I already talked about it. No one cares about fiscal responsibility anymore. I do. I'm one of the few people to talk about it. Um, but people want to elect politicians that are going to give them lots of stuff. You know, they want these big infrastructure bills from President Biden. They want this next $3.5 trillion package that the Democrats are going to be passing here soon. But it is interesting that he's running. Um, and one of the things that I'll, I'll give him credit for, he called out the oppressive um, restrictions during COVID-19. And he said the enforcement of these provisions is not in the public interest. These COVID restrictions were an abuse of power that infringe on our, our basic civil liberties and defy common sense while putting health and public and health of the public and enforcement officers at risk. There's some truth to that, but there's a lot of political spin in that as well. But it's interesting that he's running. Now, I just wanted to comment on this because, again, I live in the 52nd District, 52nd Congressional District of California. It is the most bizarre map I've ever seen. You know, it, I'm up in like I, it goes up like up into the area like San Dieguito. Is it San Dieguito? It's up near the Wild Animal Park. It starts up there. East of Escondido in the Wild Animal Park, and it goes all the way to Coronado. I mean, it covers, um, you know, this whole Rancho Bernardo, Poway, Rancho Penasquitos, Carmel Mountain area. But it also goes through like Mira Mesa, La Jolla, downtown San Diego, Cor Coronado, which is where Richard Bailey is from. A crazy district. And it's interesting is that for, I remember, was it in 20... 14, I think it was 2014 was the year I ran for school board. I think that was the same year, if I recall, that Carl DeMaio ran against Scott Peters. I think it was. And this was considered to be one of the few hotly contested districts, one of the few that was reasonably balanced Republican Democrat. And Peters ended up winning. And since then, it's become more and more Democrat. And it's interesting to look at the numbers is that in. Um, where was it? Yeah, in 2012, um, Peters won 50, 51% of the vote. In 14, he also got 51% of the vote to Carl DeMaio's 48. But then in 2016, he got 56% of the vote. And in 2018, 63% of the vote. And in 2020, 61% of the vote. So he's got a competitor. I don't know if this guy, I mean, he's a mayor of Coronado. Good on him, but... Something crazy needs to happen to dethrone Scott Peters. He's just so well-liked, and he knows how to play the game. He, he understands his district. That there's a lot of high-income people, and there's a lot of technology in his district. So he's definitely very friendly with technology companies. But he's not a hardcore lefty. He's not a hardcore progressive because that wouldn't really fly in this district. Um, and he calls out Trump, you know, as he should, but he's still very selective in how he goes about it. He's very savvy and he does it with a very um, likable kind of easygoing personality. 
I don't always agree with him. Frankly, I probably disagree with him more than I agree with him. But I must admit, he's just a nice guy. And he plays the game very effectively. So I don't know. I, I just thought it was interesting. And then I went back and looked at our district here, District 53. You know, they've changed, or 52, excuse me. They've changed. They've reconfigured the districts. I think they did that in 2010 because California 52 prior to that used to be Duncan Hunter. Remember him? Duncan Hunter Jr., who was disgraced and lost uh, in the last election. Who did he lose to? Um, The guy that had the car alarm company up in Vista. Um, Oh, Isa. He lost to Isa. And then his father, remember um, uh, Duncan Hunter Sr., who was beloved by the military industrial complex. So this California 52, maybe back then it was 52 must have existed in the East County where we're more in the Central County, although that is a running joke on Padres Twitter that Poway is in East County. Um, But I was trying to remember, maybe if you're listening or watching on the live stream, back in, was it in the 1990s or was it in the 2000s? Remember Randy Duke Cunningham? And he got in that scandal and he got busted for, I think he was taking kickbacks from military contractors. I think that was what the problem was. And he went to jail. Didn't he represent Poway? Because I know one of the companies that he was getting kickbacks from was up, if I recall, my mind is a little cloudy. I think it was up in the Poway Business Park. Dana McGee Sterl says he didn't lose. He had to resign. He was still elected after being charged. Are we talking about Duncan Hunter Jr.? I think he may have been reelected in 2018 when he was under under scrutiny. But then he ended up getting busted and he was a loyal Trumpist. But he def- and he won the Republican nomination because he went on a post. But he definitely lost the election in 2020. But didn't Randy Duke Cunningham used to represent Poway back in the day? I think he did. And if it wasn't Poway, it was definitely really close to Poway. So it's interesting, you know, that Randy Duke Cunningham and Duncan Hunter Jr. have either been the representative of Poway or been nearby. So we've had a colorful history. Scott Peters is the opposite of that. He's, he's like very easygoing. He's not quite as vanilla milk toast as Kevin Faulkner, but he's definitely not a rebel rouser. He's not an activist. He's just an easygoing, well-calculated, nice guy. And so now he has a challenger, the mayor of Coronado, Richard Bailey. What's going to happen? I don't know. That's always interesting to follow. Uh, Dana McGee Sterl says Brent Wilkes was the Poway guy bribing him. Okay, so maybe you knew Brent Wilkes. A lot of crazy stuff. I mean, we also had that tax scandal with the Poway Chabad, which was tragic because that's where the shooting was. That they've been in the news quite a bit, but a lot of corruption. That's what happens in politics. I mean, that's why we had so much corruption at the Poway Unified School District with John Collins. The government and the, and the public till is just easy fodder for this kind of corruption because these politicians or, or highly paid administrators like John Collins as a superintendent, they just do whatever they can to cling to power and to the compensation that comes with it. I talked about 50 firefighters in Poway made over $150,000 in total compensation in 2019. 
probably paid more now. I'm not saying the firefighters in Poway are corrupt. I'm saying that, though, that in the world of politics particularly, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for corruption. And sadly, my hometown of Poway has been directly involved or indirectly involved with various cases. Something. Um, At any rate, um, we've covered a lot today, haven't we? We talked about the the recall of uh, election that's coming up where maybe Gavin Newsom is going to lose his spot. But I'll tell you what, I think Gavin Newsom is, if he survives this, which I think he will, he's definitely got his eyes on the presidency. No doubt about it. And I think that's part of the reason he was so hardcore on the COVID lockdown. And also, I think that's why I may mention this in my podcast last week. When I was in Nevada, they had mask mandates indoors, and we don't have a mask mandate indoor in California. That doesn't make sense, does it? You would think California would be more aggressive, but they're not. Why? Because Gavin Newsom has an election coming up in the next, what, 30 to 45 days. We covered that. We we talked about Gavin Newsom, talked about Larry Elder and Kevin Faulkner and the whole recall and democracy. Then we got into the Biden infrastructure bill and kind of broke that down and talked a little bit about electric vehicles. That was always fun. I always love talking EVs. And... And we talked about the Poway firefighters, and it's an interesting news story. I'm going to follow this. Um, hope to have some more information on this soon. And then, yeah, our local congressman, Scott Peters, got a competitor, a formidable competitor. Most of his previous competitors have not been as high of stature as Richard Bailey is. They've been, you know, prominent business people or, you know, uh, activists within the Republican Party. In one case, Carl DeMaio, who... Is something of a circus act, uh, but he was a former city councilman in San Diego. But now this is a pretty significant challenger, but it, it's almost too late because this district is even more Democrat. It's more blue. And I think it's going to take some kind of a crisis for him to lose. But anyway, uh, you know, thanks for joining me. I, I do want to, once again, I'm going to put this out there. Let me know what your thoughts are. I'm thinking about maybe, you know, I'm in my podcast rhythm. I'm doing them now Wednesdays at two. I was doing it Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two, and it was too much. But I still would like to get more people involved in this project. So that's why I'm thinking about doing Fridays. And, you know, we could pick a time that works well for everybody, but we can do it as like a hangout where it'd be like a Zoom call with like a Brady Bunch configuration of like nine of us or 15 of us. And we can have a discussion and I'll control, I'll mute people and we'll have a controlled environment to let certain people talk at certain times. What do you think of that idea? I mean, this is a community forum, so why not invite the community in? We can have a little fun with it. If we do it on a Friday happy hour, I don't know, maybe alcoholic beverages are involved or not. Um, we can make it a little bit, a little bit loose. I think that'd be kind of fun. So let me know your thoughts. If you have a comment or a thought on it, um, you can go to my website at johnreillyproject.com. Send me an email at, to uh, john at johnreillyproject.com or just drop me a note in the live stream here in the, in the chat forum and I'll see it there. But I'm always interested in your thoughts. Okay, we've gone on long enough, an hour and 22 minutes. So thanks again to everybody that's been here. Appreciate your support. Love you all. And we'll see you Next Wednesday, August 18th. Take care, friends. Bye-bye. 
If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.